Let's dig into, God, dig into God's Word today together. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. That is going to be on page 1028 if you're using one of our pew Bibles. The Word is going to be behind me on the screen. But if you do not have a Bible that you can read and, and understand, we want to help you with that. We want to gift you. Um, and so if you don't have a Bible, please take one of these in front of you. It's the CSB. It is the version that, we, that I preach from and some of our classes are taught from. Uh, we believe it's faithful to the translation. It's, it's accurate uh, as best as possible, but it's also very readable for the average reader. We're going to jump right in and get to this letter that the Apostle Paul penned to the church at Corinth, but more importantly, that the Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to, to pen and has preserved it for us in His Word. So would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word. We're going to be in chapter 10. We're going to read the entirety of the text. And this is the side B of last week's message. Uh, so it's a continuity there. But here we go. Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, pens these words. Now I, Paul, myself, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble among you in person, but bold towards you when absent. I beg you that when I am present, I will not need to be bold with the confidence by which I plan to challenge certain people who think we are behaving according to the flesh. For although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments in every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And we are ready to punish any disobedience once your obedience is complete. Look at what is obvious. If anyone is confident that he belongs to Christ, let him remind himself of this, that just as he belongs to Christ, so do we. For if I boast a little too much about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. And I don't want to seem as though I am trying to terrify you with my letters, for it is written, his letters, it said, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we are also to be in our actions when we are present. For we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. But in measuring themselves by themselves, in comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached you, since we have come to you with the gospel of Christ. We are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will be greatly enlarged, so that we may preach the gospel to the regions beyond you, without boasting about what has already been done in someone else's area of ministry. So... But the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. For it is not the one, who, who, the one commending himself who is approved, but the one the Lord commends. Let us pray. Lord God, today we've read from your word, 
And Lord, we know that You've promised that Your Holy Spirit has been with us throughout the week and, and that where you have gathered together, we are here among You. And so as You being the greatest of all teachers, You, the Holy Spirit, empowering us and giving us Your Word, I pray that You would be the one who teaches us. Help me just to be a servant behind the shadow of Your cross today and that, God, You would may be glorified through all things that we do, say, and trust. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. All right, so we're digging in. We're continuing, uh, actually getting near the finished part of our series called Awaken, where Paul is, is writing these letters back and forth to the church, and he's stirring them to, to be alert, to be wakened to what God has done for them, not to slumber, not to take it for granted, not to get lazy with what has been entrusted. And this is the, the, the general direction of these letters to the church at Corinth. Just a moment, let me try to see if I can fix this where it's not swinging around. All right, so when we get to the Word, though, we need to take time not to say, all right, what's the gist? Let me just get that, put a little wrinkle in the noodles of my brain, and, and I'll be done. We really need to see and what it's teaching us. We want to have an understanding of God's Word. And so to have a greater understanding, our goal as a church is to help people to see what does the Scripture say, because God has graciously in our time, in our uh, part of life, and whenever we, how we've been born for such a time as this, God has get, made His Word accessible to us. We live in one of the nations that is, has the Bible the most accessible to it. So we want to see and, and, and actually read the Bible. Not just say, hey, you know, I heard something, I read something somewhere. No, no let's look and see what it says. But let's also see what it means. That we don't take for granted that the Bible was written and completed 2,000 years ago. And before that, it was 1,500 years in the making by 40 different authors in three different continents with three different languages. And God gave His Word in the time and place for purpose to meet the needs and to speak to where the people were and to show His work throughout history and time. So we need to go back and see what it means so that we will also know what it, how it applies to us today. That it can't, we can't take it and say it means something different from what it meant back then. No, it still means the same. It may have different unique applications, but it still means the same. So we need to see what it means and what it, how it applies. And then we need to ask ourselves, why, why should I trust and follow this? And we'll hopefully see God's grace at work. Here we see the Apostle Paul is writing this letters, these letters to the church at Corinth. Why is he writing to the church at Corinth? Well, first of all, he's writing letters because... His role as an apostle, someone who, whose job is to help plant churches and, and spread the gospel in areas where it has not been known, where the message has not been heard, he has been careful to do this. Why would Paul do this? Well, that was a part of his calling. And second, it was a part of the overflow of his life. When we read anything by the apostle Paul, we cannot neglect to think about the transformation that God provided on this man. That he was once a he, he was a person that was well regarded for his zealous religious beliefs. And yet, even as zealous and as spiritual and religious as he was, he was going in the wrong direction, away from God's redemptive plan. He was even going in the wrong direction and pushing people away and, and, and pushing people into prison and, and having them tortured and arrested. Because he was so against this direction that God had fulfilled through Jesus Christ. But in a miraculous act of grace, 
God rescued this person who was so distant from God and so persecuting towards the church itself that he, he, he gave him a glimpse of what it means to see the resurrected Jesus. What it means to experience the love and kindness and compassion that the Savior has for all people. And his life was never the same. Never the same. And thus, 2,000 years later, we're still reading 13 of the letters that this apostle that lived 2,000 years ago was writing about his Jesus. That was writing about his calling. That was writing to encourage the church. Now sometimes when we read these letters, they get a little hard. They look a little difficult. Here in this section of, of this letter, it's what we call 2 Corinthians, it, it's, it seems really punchy, really loud, really big and, and bold and edgy. But what is clear is Paul's concern for this church that he loves, this church that he helped to found on his second missionary journey. And while he's a thousand miles away in the city of Ephesus on his third missionary journey, he is still riding back and forth, still with loving kindness, to share with them the news of the Savior and what it means to be entrusted with the Gospel. And as he writes 2 Corinthians, he's writing to this church that after 1 Corinthians, this this letter had written, there was a a response of repentance and humility and acknowledgement and returning to grace and people having their eyes opened. And Paul's saying, okay, this is now what's next. This is what is, is for you now. And he doesn't want the church, to miss out on their calling in the midst of all the noise, in the midst of all the distractions, in the midst of all the busyness that might come their way. And not only all the busyness, but he wants to make sure that the resounding gospel and truth of Christ is elevated and, and lifted up and clearly made known because there's a lot of other false teachings going around still in the church at Corinth. Now I want to pause right there. And I want you to just think about where you're at right now. What would you see, say is the greatest need for the world right now? Just right where you're sitting. Now I know we're in a church. So the code word that we must answer is Jesus. If you've ever been to Sunday school, that's like the answer, right? Jesus. Am I, I'm correct, right? And, and honestly, hopefully that's just not like a jump to, I know that's what I'm supposed to answer. Hopefully that is a heartfelt, sincere answer. Yes, I know the world needs Jesus. It needs Him clearly. It needs His love declared boldly. It needs His truth held confidently. It needs everything about Jesus. This world needs that. Where is it going to get it from? The Bible tells us that's the job of the church. That's the role. That's why we exist. Like we, we exist, yes, to encourage and support one another, equip one another. I'm quoting verbatim the lesson we had in our Bible group this morning. You know, that's a part of who we are. Yes, that's the just stuff we enjoy. Support, encouragement, equipping. Good. But Why? Because we're meant to be those clear speakers, those clear presentations, like crisp as 
as sound can be that says this is who Jesus is. But here's the problem. If that's not known, if that is not embraced, if that is not caught, if that is lost in all the noise and all the other things in the church, then how in the world is the world going to get it? Because the church won't even know it. And that's a problem. Now do you see why Paul might be a little fired up? Because this is a big deal. This is not just, oh, well, it's me. You guys don't like me. You think I'm weak and all this. No, he's saying, look, you're getting lost in the noise. And there's a world that's going to hell and it needs Jesus. And if it's not getting it from you, where's it going to get it from? It's got to be clear. And so how does the Scripture make this clear about standing firm in our faith and practice? Well, last week we talked about this first statement that needs to be known. The church must know how to make clear the ways to wage in spiritual warfare. And make no bones about it. I know we get kind of weirded out when people start talking about spiritual warfare. But if you're talking about Jesus, if you're talking about heaven and hell, you're talking about the, the one that is larger than life, the one who holds eternity in his hands, the one that created the universe, the one who is the full embodiment of all things that are good, righteous, and holy, and the one who will bring a reckoning to all that is evil, sin, and darkness. You're talking about spiritual things. You're talking about a war that is bigger than anything we could even imagine. One that is already assured of victory. Don't worry about that part. God's got that rigged. It's going to happen. That's good news. Because nothing could ever overpower Him. But in the middle of the war, which there is total victory, there are going to be battles that we're going to take part of. Little quarrels and skirmishes on the offense and defense. That depending on where we are with the Lord and how we're willing to wage that war is whether or not there will be victory in those moments. Paul here is saying what's going on if the message of Christ, the making known of Christ, the, the truth of Christ, the grace of Christ, the mission of Christ, if it's being diminished and there are other distractions that are overpowering it, guess what? That's a spiritual war issue. Are you tracking with me? That's a spiritual condition. That is not just some ho-hum, just lays and haze of predicament that you may be in. That's a spiritual issue that is big, not to be diminished. So Paul says, in this moment, I, I face accusations and know that as a church, we are going to face accusations. And when we face accusations, well, we must make clear, if we're going to wage war correctly, we must have the answers. And we must communicate them well. Because if we don't, we just get hidden in the noise. We just... We sound like 90s internet. But if we're going to do so, we must do that as those who are saved, those who know the gospel for themselves, we must, we must do that as those who are sympathetic and compassionate to the world. We must do that as those that are stalwart and confident. We must do that as those who are skilled with the weapons God has entrusted. And by the way, that's a big deal as well. When we talk about spiritual weapons, I know we have the little cartoony things that we do for kids. And as, as by the time we get to adults, we know these things, but we kind of look at them as like, oh yeah, it's the cartoon stuff, you know, the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the shield of faith and all that. We kind of look at it as a little cartoony. But the Bible says these are potent, not because of your power, 
but because of God's power who gave them to us. And they're able not to make some small differences in impact on the defensive end or the offensive end. They're able to demolish, to destroy these strongholds. Once again, spiritual issue, warfare issue, these strongholds that diminish the name of Jesus. That cloud and muddle His name. That misuse His tasks. We must be skilled with them. Not untrained. But we must be savvy on how to take these these areas of our life captive and, and ready to put down anything that would not be obedience to Jesus in our life individually, and then anything in our church collectively. A few weeks ago we had a conference here, and one of the speakers was talking about the, the, the church, the letter written to the church at Ephesus. Now, we, I, I love the book of Ephesians. I, I do. I think it's one of the most beautifully penned uh, pieces of literature in the Scripture. It's beautiful. The imagery there, the calling and the, and the status of the church, but when Jesus is speaking to the church at Ephesus, He gives them these, these multiple accolades about things they're doing right, and it's all good. But then He has this word that really kind of puts the uh, moment. And that's the nevertheless. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have forgotten. You have left your first love. That's a big deal issue. The reason Jesus spoke, speaks to this to the church at Ephesus is He wants them to clarify that He's given them the moment to, to bring this to reckoning, to deal with it, so that they can continue. We must be ready to deal with these things if we're going to be able to clearly show that what we're about is larger than life, that there is heaven and hell in the balance for the lost world around us. And that what we are aiming for and living for is the very holiness and namesake of Jesus. We must be clear on that. Because if we don't, we're just some club. We're just some assembly, some organization. We're just some do-gooders. We're just some, some law livers. We're so, just some people have a code of conduct. That's all. Hopefully our kids won't end up messed up. That's what we're doing. But if it's about something more, it's about Jesus, then we've got to be able to see and look beyond the noise and say, what do I need to hear? What do I need to trust? What do I need to live? And know that I'm engaged in the battle so I don't go home to sleep like this is boring. Second statement. The church must be clear on how to administer spiritual authority. See, whenever you have a war, you've got to have some, some, some trust in some people that God has placed in your life. Now the problem is, you can't just look in every nook and cranny and find that person. Paul is dealing right here as he writes with some people that, they have different philosophies that are false teachers. They may not be out and out heretics, fully denying the divinity of Jesus. But they are false in their teaching, they're false in their motives. They're presenting a counterfeit gospel in some ways, because they're not making it about Jesus. And so Paul says in this element, he says, I want you to know what I've lived out before you, and I want you to see what is obvious here about what it means to be confident and belong to Jesus. And when you see this, know that these people have been placed in your life to help 
and minister spiritual authority to you. Some will be placed in levels to help you learn. Some of these will be put in levels to help you serve. Some of these will be put in levels to help you discern through things. But how do you test them? And make no bones about it, we must test them. The Bible is very clear that throughout history and even today, there have been false teachers. In the Old Testament times, there were warnings upon warnings upon warnings to the people of Israel after God had delivered them from Egypt to say you're going into a land, a very spiritual land. But there are these people that are going to be there and if you allow them to remain around you all the time, if they don't turn to the Lord, because there were caveats for turning to the Lord, there were strangers and foreigners welcomed into the people of Israel. But those that were refused... They will lead you astray. And after repetition and repetition and repetition and repetition, there are many examples that have happened. Jesus warned about false teachers. He said that you will be able to recognize them by their fruits, that a bad tree does not produce good fruit. And to know that there are going to be people that walk around as Wolves in sheep's clothing. That, that description came from Jesus. To be careful and mindful of the outwardly appearance. And Paul, dealing with the early church, even the early church, this is the church within the first hundred years of the resurrection, guys. They're dealing with it. So we would be foolish to think that that doesn't happen. If it happened in the first century church, it certainly can happen today. Well, how do you do that? How how do you know who to trust and what are you looking for? Paul says one of the first things you need to look for is verifiable intimacy with Christ. That something about them belonging to Jesus is evident. That they belong to Jesus. In other words, they are owned by Him. Not that they act like they own a corner market on Jesus. There's a difference, by the way. There's some people who believe that they've got their God in the box, and you listen to follow them, follow them their way, you're going to have it all. But they've got ownership of Jesus. But there's a difference when you see someone that says, that person is owned by Jesus. They have yielded their life into His ownership, and they have a relationship with this Jesus. They belong to Him. Paul's calling that into account, saying that, You've seen who we are and that we belong to Jesus. Secondly, they have a valuable impact on the church. He says, if I boast a little too much about the authority which the Lord gave for building you up and not for tearing you down, I will not be put to shame. In other words, yeah, he's going to say, there's things that's happened. I'm going to recognize there's things that's been accomplished. But you know what? These were things that had a valuable impact in the church. They weren't just sitting there slamming and bashing and all these kind of things. They were looking for what? edified and built it up and and looking back on the history of their life they said you know what he may not have done every single thing right he may have done everything single thing good but i can see that person left a valuable lasting impact on the church i'm gonna tell you i i know that there's gonna be days i'm gonna fail you because i'm a human being just like you are there's gonna be days there's other leaders in your life other people in your family they're gonna fail you but what is Testing of their life is saying, is that person leaving a valuable impact 
and then bringing it back and looking in the mirror. Is that what God is doing through me? Am I a person that has a verifiable intimacy with Jesus? I am owned by Him, and my life is set up to the goal of leaving a valuable impact on the church. Is my life having a visual empathy with for people? Paul says, I don't want to seem as though I'm trying to terrify you with my letters. That's not the goal. He's not saying, I'm trying to be the big bad boogeyman and make everybody think I'm the big bad boss. I'm the villain at the end of the game. No. He's like, I, I, I don't want to. That's not my goal. It's not the aim. I have a compassion for you. I mean, every bit of this whole letter has been showing that. And my whole goal is not to beat you up, but to help lift you up. To walk with you. Not to wash my hands of you. You're looking for people that have not only a verifiable intimacy with Christ and a valuable impact on the church and a visual empathy for for people, but people that have a vehement intolerance over carnal methods. Paul says these people that are talking about us and our ministry, he's first said his weight letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and public speaking amounts to nothing. In other words, they're saying, all right, yeah, we, we, we'll, we'll say, and we'll, we'll say that, yeah, his letters are, are pretty good. They're, they're very rich. I feel that way when I read Paul's letters in the New Testament today. That, wow, just the, the way the Holy Spirit inspired him to pen these words and how they're prolific and they flow, they're, they're just awesome. And useful. But then they said the other message is like, oh, his physical presence, it's, it's nothing to be, uh, it's lacking, and his physical public speaking, it, it, it's really not that good, it's not that charismatic, it's just not where it is. Paul said of himself, when I came to you, I, I, I put all that aside and, and I claim to know nothing. I, I came to you serving Christ in fear and trembling. But in doing so, he says, I don't want I don't want the way the church to be built to be built on some carnal, earthly, trendy methods. Not that gimmicks can be a bad thing or a good thing. However you can get people to church, that's okay. I'm good with it as long as it's not crossing the line of a sin. But to know this, those things don't last. Because another trend comes around. Another gimmick gets the hook. Another bait Snags the fish. But what can never be torn down is when we're living by God's Word and saying, I am not going to seek to do these things on my own power, on my own method, my own skill, or, or are these things, but according to God's Word. I, they're okay, but I'm going to... That's not it. I'm not going to say everything is these things and nothing is this. I have an intolerance for that. They also have a virtuous integrity. Paul says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. Paul says, my life is never meant to be something that is light and dark, left and right. It's meant to be this perfect balance that who I am when I'm with you, I am when I'm apart from you. Who I am when I call you or write to you, the same as whenever I'm there in person. There's no duplicity. There's no second person. There's no mask. Paul makes clear that this is who we aim our life 
So what do we need to know about that? If the church is going to be people that clearly resonate and proclaim the message, first we've got to understand what we're part of is larger than life. And what we embrace matters and must be tested. Does it fulfill and line up with God's Word? The, second, the third statement is this. The church must be clear on how to evaluate spiritual maturity as they move along. Paul spoke and says, um, we don't dare classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. By, but in measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves to themselves, they lack understanding. In other words, Paul says the whole measure of spiritual maturity is not putting yourself on this scale that says, all right, well, I think these people are more spiritual than me, but I'm better than these people. So here I am. I, I'm going to say I'm an eight. That's not the goal of spiritual maturity. That doesn't make you mature. Commending yourselves by yourselves and comparing yourselves by others. That is not a part of spiritual maturity. That's not the goal. Paul says for people to do that is to say that you lack understanding. It means you have lost something in the noise. Your message and the testimony of your life has become muddled. So when you're evaluating spiritual maturity, evaluating spiritual ministry, one of the goals is not to say, all right, let me just put ourselves in line and see where we are on the spectrum. That's not the goal. It's to say, let me put myself before the Word and see its understanding measured in contrast to that. It's a willingness we see in verse 13, to minister within limits. As we, however, will not be boast beyond measure, but according to the measure of the area of ministry that God has assigned to us, which reaches even to you. What does that mean? Paul said he was willing to follow the path and the, 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 the direction that God had for him. Sometimes he had to learn and to be discerning on what that looked like. There was one time in Acts, I believe it's Acts chapter uh, uh, 15, maybe 16, somewhere in there, that Paul was trying to aim the trajectory of his mission and his journeys in a certain place. And it just seemed like God, it, he even says, God was prohibiting and preventing them from moving in a certain direction. But then God opened the door and gave him a vision to go to Macedonia, to the Greeks, and to, into Europe, and that's the direction he went. And he was willing to stay in the lane that God had for him. That he was content there. He would even write in 2 Timothy when he was writing to his younger protege who had been left to the church at Ephesus. He says that godliness with contentment is of great gain. And I think some of us need to understand that. I know I need to understand that, that God has said, here is the lane. I have set the perimeters for your life and your calling. Follow after me and trust that. You may think, well, I just want God to expand my territory. That's biblical, right? Yeah, it's in the Bible. And just because God is telling you to expand your territory doesn't mean that you have to go to the right or left. I know that if I want to keep going, and I'm on the highway, and I want to expand my territory, I can go straight. But I don't need to go off in the gully, and I don't need to drive up the ravine. But I can go forward. Whenever God says to go, that's the way I need to go. Jesus himself 
ministered within the limits that God provided for him. But he was sent to the towns and the cities of Israel. That he was obedient and faithful to everything that God had told him. We must do likewise. And if we're going to evaluate spiritual maturity, we've got to see that, that a part of that growth is willing to say, you know what? I'm not going to be complacent or mediocre, but I am willing to minister in the lane God has provided for me. It's an unwillingness to take credit for others' labors. In 14 through 16, Paul says this. He says, For we are not overextending ourselves as if we had not reached out to you. He said, It's not saying like we didn't come to you. Paul said, We're the people that came to you to first give you the gospel. It doesn't mean you owe us anything, but we're, just, we're not bragging or, or saying something that's untrue when that happened. But we are not boasting beyond measure about other people's labors. On the contrary, we have the hope that as your faith increases, our area of ministry will greatly be enlarged. In other words, he's saying this, I'm not going to try to take credit for what other people are doing. But I am thankful that God sent me to do what I was supposed to do. And hopefully through all of us working together, there will be mutual benefit. But if you did this, congratulations. I'm so grateful. But I'm not going to steal your glory. But I'm going to seek the Lord's glory in this. But then Paul says this, there's an unwillingness to take credit for others' labors. But there is also a willingness to seek the Lord's glory. And an unwillingness to do anything that prevents eternal, pursuing that eternal glory. What does this mean? Paul said the ultimate end goal is not to make much of me. You see, if the message that you're tuned into or the message that you're getting lost in is all about what's just building you up and building you up and building you up and making your name great and making you look good and all these kind of things, and you get lost in that noise, guess what? One day that name and all that is going to be buried in the dirt. And what impact will be left? But what is done for the Lord's glory, what is done according to His Word. It has a lasting impression. Yes, your name may be forgotten, and that's okay. It's okay if the world forgets your name, brother. Did you know that? Because there's one who will never forget it. He's marked it down. He's invited you into His eternal glory. That is good enough. And if we can live to make that name great, His name great, and not boast about anything else but the Lord. And not seek to commend ourselves, but to be the one that the Lord commends. The one who's, He's written my name down and He remembers what I've done. That will be enough. The church needs to be clear on how to evaluate spiritual maturity. We've got to be clear on how to deal with this larger than life picture and not get diminished and, and clouded under the little bitty stuff that doesn't really matter in the end. And we've got to be able to be a part of the big picture and the big plan that God has had. We've got to learn what it means to trust His Word and to be entrusted with it and, and, and administer that authority well and not to be false in our teaching. We've got to be able to evaluate how we're growing and the direction we're moving. But lastly, as if it's not clear enough, the church must be clear on its communication of the spiritual essentials. And that's the Gospel. Man, if we lose the message, the focus, the purpose, 
and the direction of the gospel. We are a church. We are disciples that are just full of static noise. That's all. We were talking about today, it's in, in our Bible group this morning, how profound it is those that will claim a title of I'm a Christian, or maybe they'll bring it down to a denomination, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a fill-in-the-bank, or I'm a no-blank, I'm a non-denom, whatever it is. And yet they'll claim all these things, and yet, as clear as they want to make that statement, they cannot clearly communicate the gospel essential. That somehow communicating about God's holiness and His goodness and His justness and His love and His truth, and I could just keep going on, it's lost in noise. Whenever it comes to talking about the offense of sin, it's, it's lost in noise. It's, it's not about repentance. It's not about redemption. It's not about restoration. It's about re- redefinition. And oh, that's not so bad. That's not such a big deal. Because they first have lost the noise and the message about the gospel, uh, the God's character. And so the offense of sin, it's not that big of a deal. And if the offense of sin is not that big of a deal, and God's character is not that big of a deal, then why do I care about Jesus? He's just the guy in the bathrobe that I come and give presents about on Christmas and Easter. You see how it's a bigger message. But because they see, and we need to be people that didn't clearly, clearly communicate God's character and the, 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 the potency and the offensiveness of sin, man, the, the awesomeness, the greatness and grace of Jesus and His sufficiency and His authority, it becomes so much more prevalent. And then we see that personal responsibility, that aspect of the Gospel, It needs to be there. That the gospel is not something you culturally inherit. It's not something that's just a a traditional passed down. It's not just something for white people or rich people or middle class people or American people. Just because grandma knew Jesus doesn't mean you know Jesus. Just because you were born in the USA does not make you a believer. Just because you were born in a land that lends with stand doesn't mean you're prevented from being a believer either. There's a personal responsibility that has been gifted to us. And each of us must decide what to do with Jesus. That we must be clear on the eternal urgency of this. That, that if this is a spiritual message, there's a bigger war. So heaven and hell are real. Eternity is a big deal because guess what? Once this temporary vapor of a life is done, all the rest of time itself hangs in the balance. That's eternity. And Paul and, and, and Jesus has given us the gospel. Paul is clearly pushing people towards that. That God has provided the way to, to take the default direction of, of our damnation and destruction away. And this is the love that Jesus has for us. But to understand that none of this is because we are worthy, but everything that Jesus does is meant to transform life. The Gospel is not something that says, 
all right, well, I flicked the switch, now just go live your life like you want. If we know the Gospel, if we know God's character, the offense of sin, the sufficiency of Christ, the personal responsibility that was entrusted to us, heaven and hell, guess what? Life better change or we've missed the message in all the others. And if we have missed the message, if it is not coming through with clarity and we are not purposely seeking to tune into the right place to hear the Word of God, the voice of God, the will of God, and see the power of God. And if that's not happening here, it will not happen out there. Because we have not done what God has called us to do. So if Paul seems a little fired up, but you see the clarity of his Word, that's a good thing because we need to hear it. Because God has entrusted us with it. So that what comes to clear here is lived out with clarity out there. You want to see the church change? Let's be clear on hearing the word of the Lord. Let's be clear on trusting in His way. Let's be clear in growing and embracing what He has entrusted to us, this ministry of reconciliation. So that when we walk through the door, we're prepared. And say, God, I'm your broadcaster. I'm your transmitter. Whatever you need. You've done all the work. I'm just here to let it flow. Let it flow in my lips, my life, and my love. Let it never be diminished. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, today as we come to this moment to, um, to respond to You, to respond to Your Word, to, uh, to make a decision, God, I pray that we would do so based on our delight in You, based on the delight You've shown in us, based on Your grace. Thank You for Your grace, because if it wasn't for that, I would be nothing. I would have nothing. This would just be a resounding gong and noise up here. It, it would be absolutely purposeless. But because of You, there is love and life and direction. Help us live it fully for You. Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed this time. And I don't know where you are in this room today. I don't know what God may be communicating to you about where you are with your needs and what He has revealed for you to do. But I'm going to be here during this time of response. For some in this room, there may be a need for peace with God that you need to trust in the Lord for salvation. I can't look at your heart. I can't weigh it in the balance. But God sees it clearly. And He puts an impression on your heart what you need, what direction you must follow. So if that's you today and you need peace with God, I, I, I want to be here at the front to help you to, to place your, your trust in the Lord. I want to help you walk you through that if, if God is impressing on your heart the, the need to make, to make that declaration place your trust in Him.